is second story is engineering and office space. Um, and then the first story is predominantly like manufacturing, R&D technician areas. All that. Blake Resnick, the CEO and founder of drone startup Brink, was showing us around the company's two-level space in a nondescript building in Seattle's Fremont neighborhood on Wednesday afternoon when he mentioned that it had been a very eventful day. Uh, we just finished up a board meeting, so if I'm oh, you're a kidding me. Fried, that'll be why. Uh, and we just had the first flight of the production version of uh, Lemur 2. So, yeah, it happened while, while we were in the board meeting. In this building? Yeah. So we, we heard like cheers kind of erupt from this general area when it happened, which was, that was a fun moment. So you'd The spontaneous celebration was in response to the first flight of the production version of the Lemur 2, the company's new drone for police and other public safety agencies. It was another milestone for Brink and another day in the life of a 23-year-old startup leader who oversees a team of nearly 100 people and has raised more than $80 million from some of the biggest names in technology and venture capital. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. On this episode of the GeekWire podcast, Blake Resnick sits down at the end of a very eventful day to talk about the company's origin story, its decision to move from Las Vegas to Seattle, the development and upcoming release of the Lemur 2, his recent visit to the White House, and the geopolitical forces impacting the company's products. And finally, he tells the story of the mind-blowing series of events that led OpenAI CEO Sam Altman to become Brink's first investor. Be sure to listen to the end for that. Blake Resnick, we are here at Brink in Seattle's Fremont neighborhood. It's always a pleasure when I get to just walk to the locations of our podcast guests. It's great to be here and thanks for hosting us. Oh yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for coming. Absolutely. So you just gave me a tour of the facilities here. This is really a surprise in the middle of a place that's known for software in a neighborhood sure. that's otherwise known as the center of the universe to see <laughs> really a sophisticated drone manufacturing facility right here. You moved this company from Las Vegas about a year and a half ago. Why did you come to Seattle instead of the Bay Area or Silicon Valley? Yeah, I mean, so I, I actually ran a proper process on this. Uh, I, I grew up in Las Vegas. It's where I started the company. But we figured out there really aren't many engineers in Las Vegas. You know, um, if if you want to hire slot machine engineers, turns out a lot of those there. <laughs> but uh, you get into aerospace and your, your options start becoming really limited. Um, I don't think we hired even a single local engineer in Las Vegas. Like everyone we interviewed or hired ultimately uh, had to relocate and it just became unviable. So I, I looked at Seattle, I looked at the Bay Area, I looked seriously at LA, I looked at Boston, DC, like everywhere you could think of. Um, and what, what really convinced me about Seattle is it's just an incredible pool of talent in a couple of relevant industries. So you have a great pools of aerospace talent in Boeing and Aerojet Rocketdyne and Blue Origin and SpaceX. And then you have amazing software talent and you know suspects you would expect, Amazon, Microsoft, those types of companies. Uh, and then you also have world-class consumer electronics talent with you know Microsoft Surface or Oculus or HoloLens or these teams. So uh, just great great pools of talent to kind of pull from. How do you explain Brink to someone who's never heard of the company? 
we're a public safety technology company. That's what it's all about. So uh, we make two products right now. The first is the lemur drone. So small quadcopter designed to get eyes and ears in dangerous places, initially targeting SWAT teams. So instead of a dozen dudes holding assault rifles, you know, breaching a building and physically trying to arrest someone, which is extremely dangerous for everyone, you know, dangerous for the officers, dangerous for the suspect, dangerous for the family that just happens to be living next door, like send in a small drone to look around, find someone and then talk to them. So we build the first drone in the world with a two-way audio system. So that's kind of the first. And then the second product is Brinkball. So it's a crisis communications device. Uh, it's what a hostage negotiator would use to talk to a hostage taker. So sort of the most durable cell phone in, in the world. It's literally a cell phone in a ball yeah. that can be, if not thrown, at least lowered and take uh, some sort of impact when it goes into a place that would otherwise be unreachable. Yep, 100%. We did all the electronics from scratch, all the software from scratch, incredibly durable, very long uh, battery life. Hostage negotiations can go on for prolonged periods. So um, you've got about 24 hours of talk time with that device, but like seven days of listen time. So you can have a sort of a conversation ongoing for a couple of days and uh, still be able to utilize the product, which is a big deal and a lot of other advantages. So it helps, it helps out negotiators. We'll talk a little bit more later on about the Lemur 2 drone, but your customers are primarily public safety agencies, yep. law enforcement agencies, people who would use this in the field in ways that might otherwise require, in some cases, a police helicopter. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right. I think, you know, one of the things that separates us from a lot of other drone companies is we're not trying to build one product that meets the needs of consumers, commercial entities, industrial entities, public safety and defense, which other, many other companies attempt to do, we're really hyper-focused on one use case. Peter Thiel is a small investor in Brink. Like he talks a lot about this idea of taking a small industry, a small market, really owning that market, and then moving to larger and larger adjacent markets. So for us, step one is sort of indoor tactical SWAT. And step two is, as you mentioned, is, you know, we're interested in this idea of using drones to respond to 911 calls and deliver, for example, ADs, Narcan, EpiPens to medical emergencies, help firefighters get like a live thermal imaging view of a structure fire before they even arrive on scene, drive down general 911 response times. That's kind of what we want to build. So for us, that's act two. You are running a company that has nearly 100 employees. Mm -hmm. You've raised about $80 million in venture capital That's right. from some very prominent investors. Your first investor was, was it Sam Altman personally or was it OpenAI? Yeah, it was Sam Altman personally. So Sam wrote a $2 million check. And then Alex Wang of Scale AI, he wrote like a $200,000 check. And I'm very grateful to both of them because that enabled me to move out of my parents' house. So uh, thank you, Sam. <laughs> Up to this point, we haven't talked at all about what a lot of stories focus on, even in the headlines when they write about Brink and you. And so I'm going to blow the minds of some of the people <laughs> listening after they just heard some of the things you were saying and some of the investors who backed you. Have you turned 24 years old yet? No, I'm still 23. <laughs> uh, okay, so Another six months of that. Yeah. All right, so let's fact check your bio here. Sure. This, this is a good way to get your bio out there for the okay. listeners. You're originally from Las Vegas. Correct. You built a fusion reactor in your garage at age 14. That's right. Yeah. Terrified my neighbors, but it's fun. 
<laughs> and, and you live to tell about it. Yeah, for now. I mean, we'll see if I make it past 40, but yeah, for now. You interned and worked at McLaren, right. Tesla, or Tesla, as yes. Elon Musk would say, right. and DJI. Yep. You started at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. You transferred to Northwestern as part of an engineering program. Yep. But then you dropped out to start Brink. Yep, with, with the Teal Fellowship. That's right. And so that's, you mentioned Peter Thiel earlier, who's a small investor in right. Brink. But a Teal Fellowship is a program that encourages students to drop out and do tangible real things as opposed right. to sitting in the classroom. That's right. Yes. Has your mom yet forgiven you for <laughs> dropping out? <laughs> oh, man, you'd have to ask her. I don't, she was pissed. Both, both my dad and mom were pissed. Uh, I think they just flat out told me I could not drop out. So what what I ended up doing was like just convincing them to allow me to take one quarter of Northwestern off to work on my thing. Uh, that took like two or three months to do, but I, I was able to do that. So I took a quarter off. Then that next quarter, I got the internship at DJI. So they were like, okay, fine. Like you can do the internship. But then I, I told them, ah, oh, man, like I really didn't get fully what I wanted to accomplish done in that first quarter. Like, I think I just need one more to kind of get across the finish line. They're like, ah, oh, fine. You're like, fine, we'll <laughs> let them do it. And then from there, I, they, they just sort of gave up. So I, I, I had to wear them down over the course of like six or nine months. But I, I did get there. Do you think you'll ever go back? No, I don't think so. Not at this point. You've had your education in the real world. You've got big things to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I listen, I love learning. I mean, I find that oh, hugely enjoyable in general. Um, but I think my rate of learning in this job is also pretty high. You know, I mean, different topics, to be sure. Uh, but I, I feel like uh, I'm, I'm learning a lot here. So, yeah, I don't, I don't feel a huge drive to go back. Continuing down the list, um, this actually turns a little serious here in terms of the genesis story of Brink. Sure. You were inspired to start engineering a drone after the 2017 mass shooting in Las Vegas where you lived. And if I understand correctly, you had friends that were victims in that shooting. So my, my best friend was on the Strip, and I knew other people at the Route 91 Harvest Festival. And um, luckily, the, the people that I was very close with None of them got seriously injured, which I'm extremely grateful for. But um, I, I did get a call from my best friend while, uh, while he was still on the, on the strip, like shortly after the shooting started. Uh, and I don't know, just conversations with him definitely got me very interested in this topic of public safety technology. So I, I went and looked up the phone number for Vegas Metro and cold called them and surprisingly they answered we had coffee and uh i learned then that it it took first so i met with the swat commander of las vegas metro and he told me it took them over an hour to make entry into the room where the gunman was firing from and the reason why that happened is because all over the las vegas strip plain clothed police and security took out their weapons they were identified as additional active shooters, and then folks that got injured at, you know, the Route 91 Harvest Festival or were near other people that got injured might have had blood on their clothes. They also distributed around the Strip. So now you have plainclothes people with guns and you have people with blood on them all over the place. 
there's a flood of 911 calls saying, you know, there's an active shooter here, there's an active shooter there. First responders think this is a coordinated terror attack, and they send resources to all the wrong places. And um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to build for them or what would have, like, actually been helpful that night before I, I had that conversation. And from that conversation, how did you conclude that a drone could have been something that was helpful in that situation? Just really rapid situational awareness. Um, so the one, the one other thing I didn't mention, so there was, there was this big outdoor problem, which is understanding the nature of the event. But the other problem that came up was, you know, the active shooter had a weapon cached near the window where he was firing from, but he had another cache of weapons outside of his door to his hotel room. And he put like a baby monitor camera outside of that door too. There's a long hallway in the Mandalay Bay right outside of it. So his plan was the second first responders tried to enter the room, he would run to the other door, he'd grab one of the guns, and he'd just start firing down the hallway. So I, I, saw, I saw a need for, uh, for two different systems, like one to operate indoors and look ahead of people in these types of scenarios. And I saw this second opportunity for a drone that could respond from police or fire stations and get eyes on these types of events very rapidly. Um, but I thought the engineering scope of that indoor drone would be a much more manageable first step for me to take on as an individual without any money at the time. So that's, that's what I decided to build first. And um, just now we're starting to work on that, on that second part, an outdoor drone. So something to take off from police and fire stations, respond to active shooter events, but all, all manner of 911 calls. So as you said, that put you on what turned out to be a product roadmap yeah. that has yeah. led you to what is now known as the Lemur 2. Right. And we're going to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to GeekWire, and we'll be right back. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. I'm on location today at Brink in Seattle's Fremont neighborhood. I'm talking with Blake Resnick. He is the founder and CEO of the company. And you were just explaining, Blake, how you ended up getting on this path. And to fast forward, your company is getting very close to releasing your latest drone for public safety, which is called the Lemur 2. Right. This thing seems like it can do everything. I mean, it can literally break glass. And I realize right. previous versions could as well, but you've, if I understand correctly, put diamonds in it, but I don't want to steal your thunder. <laughs> so what can the lemur to do and how can it be used? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's all about getting eyes and ears in dangerous places. So um, maybe we can talk through a, a SWAT call out. This definitely isn't sort of the only use case for this. We've done a lot of work in urban search and rescue and hazmat and 
this has found a home in, in the toolkits of a lot of emergency responders. But SWAT is where we started. That's still our main focus. Um, so a normal lead up to a SWAT call out is you have an armed, armed and dangerous person inside of a structure like resisting arrest. That's normally how this happens. So um, someone will go and attempt a drive-by shooting, for example. Uh, they'll be tracked down to a house. They'll send out patrol vehicles. Those patrol vehicles will, someone will knock on the door. You know, they'll call out with the speaker for a while. If no one comes out, that becomes a situation that's dangerous enough that you get the, you get the SWAT team. It's like person that just committed a serious crime, likely has a weapon inside of a structure, not coming out when patrol is knocking on the door, you don't want patrol dealing with that anymore. So you'd call in a SWAT team, um, pull up with, with some vehicles. From here, before our, our technology was around, what they would do in a lot of cases is they'd put up their own speaker, they would call out for a while, if that didn't work, they would start placing explosives on the exterior of the house, and they would blow open doors and windows. And then they call out some more for the person to come out. And then if they didn't do that, they would send in you know, a dozen SWAT operators armed to make entry, clear rooms, find someone, grab them, arrest them. That is not re it's really not good for anyone like if it actually escalates to that point and that's that's where you start seeing you know people people getting shot and you're accepting risk of a gunfight so what our technology does is it introduces another step between you know them showing up and that happening so uh SWAT will still arrive they'll put up the speakers they'll call out for the person uh you know to to exit the building if they don't they'll take off one of our drones so they'll launch it from a block away behind cover. They'll, you know, take it off, fly up the block. Usually they start looking around the outside of the structure, look on a roof, maybe in a backyard if they're worried about it. From there, our drone will be the thing that breaks out the window instead of a person having to shield up and do it themselves. This actually can be dangerous for SWAT operators too, especially if a suspect has a rifle. They're really worried about approaching a structure. So the drone being able to make its own hole is like really nice. So the drone will go up. Uh, it has, as you said, sort of a diamond-tipped glass breaker on a little bar inside of a shroud. So that spins up to about 30,000 RPM. Second it touches glass, it just shatters. So now uh, we just shattered out a window. Uh, we'll fly the drone inside. Most drones rely on GPS. So the second you get under a roof, you lose GPS signal. And that's a major problem for the vast majority of aircraft out on the market. We didn't even put a GPS receiver on our bird. Instead, we solved that localization problem with two LiDAR sensors uh, and an additional two tracking cameras. And for people who may not be familiar, LiDAR is very common, for example, in autonomous vehicles as a way yes. of mapping the surroundings and understanding yep. where the vehicle is going. So it's very similar with what you're talking about. That's exactly right. I think our big challenge with using this, though, is our bird weighs two pounds. <laughs> so the sensors that we have to package on this, they have to be really small and advanced in order to be able to accomplish what we need. But sensors just came on the market literally within the last year or two that are capable of doing this mission. So we, we have one of those on the front of the bird. Uh, that captures around a half a million points a second. Uh, it uses that to create a full, rich 3D map of its environment. From there, it can tell a couple of things. So first off, it recognizes uh, certain, uh, basically certain features in its environment. So if it flies by a column, for example, it'll recognize that that's a column. 
And then if the drone naturally drifts a half an inch to the right, it'll say, oh man, I knew this column was here. Now it's a half an inch to the right. I just drifted a half an inch. I have to automatically sort of adjust for that with some additional control input. And that's how we're keeping our drone stable, even if an operator takes their hands off the sticks. So that's a big one. The next thing it does is it allows us to avoid obstacles. So we know if we're close to a wall, um, and the drone can automatically start applying some control input to make your sticks a little bit less responsive. So it basically automatically breaks you. One thing other manufacturers do is they build these obstacle avoidance systems that are very conservative. So if you get within three feet or five feet of an obstacle, it just stops you. That's a major problem for us where we have to nose our way through a collapsed building, for example. We have to still be able to move even if we're very close to a piece of concrete. Um, so our drone will never stop you. It just slows you down. So if you're six inches from an obstacle, it'll reduce your max speed to one mile an hour. So you know if you crash into it, the drone isn't taken out. Um, so that's a valuable feature. And then the last thing it does is it generates these big 3D point clouds. Uh, it sends those to users so they can see the point clouds and then they can take 2D slices of them in order to generate floor plans. So this is a huge deal. As our drone is flying around, it's literally drawing a floor plan. I've seen the video of this and it's really remarkable because it's, as you said, it's 3D mapping for its own navigation, but then for the people who are operating it in real time yeah. to be able to see exactly the environment that it's flying into yeah. on a floor plan created by the drone. Yeah. I can imagine it's just mind blowing for some of these law enforcement officers. It's really valuable. Not just the access, but the information yeah. and the situational awareness that they're getting. It's exactly right. I mean, a lot of them before this were using Zillow to try to figure oh my this God. out. No, I swear. I mean, nothing this against is, Zillow, but- This is common practice. These people are not buying a home. <laughs> yeah, and then the other thing you find is there, there are a lot of modifications that are done to these homes to without permitting or without telling the yeah, city. So that's right. a problem. Pictures could be outdated. Or if you're dealing with a collapsed building, it's, of course, right. not very helpful at all. So being able to get really fresh data is wildly valuable. And that collapsed building is not a hypothetical scenario. In fact, one of your drones was used to help assess damage in the aftermath of the Surfside condominium collapse in yeah, Florida because right. half that building was still standing. They were trying to figure out whether they should take the rest of it down, whether it was safe. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's just it, eyes and ears in dangerous places, right? You, you wouldn't want to send a structural engineer into an actively unstable building to do an inspection on a column. And um, they tried using terrestrial robots, but there was so much debris on the ground, they were getting stuck and only making their way, you know, 10% of the structure. And they, yeah, they, they needed our tool. So it was, yeah, it was a good mission. I feel obligated to say it's obvious we are in the middle of a manufacturing zone. I love the ambient noise here. Is that a drone? Or <laughs> yeah, is that, that's a drone. That's one of the lemur twos? Yeah, it's a drone. I think they're doing some propeller tests back there. I, I apologize. No, no, up the don't audio. apologize. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I just want people to know yeah. that that's, that's what's going on. We are literally here in the office, so that's perfect. Oh, yeah. So the lemur two is coming out in the third quarter. You're going to start shipping it. Yep. What kind of interest are you seeing and demand based on the new capabilities that you're bringing to market? There's, there's enormous demand. I mean, I think when, when, a, when a SWAT team watches a demo of this, what they're thinking is, um, you know, if I had this two years ago, my friend wouldn't have gotten shot because we would have seen that person, you know, hiding behind the door or in the closet or whatever. So um, 
once they see it in person and they actually see it clearing rooms and pushing open doors and flipping itself over after crashes and like actually breaching windows, they're like, man, this just changes my job. And you haven't even gone through, it seems, half of the features. I know there's yeah. the, the turtle yeah. mode, right? Yeah. It'll, yeah. It can flip over right. on its own. Yep. Um, there's an integrated spotlight. Yep. And there, there's a mesh system. Yeah, this is a big one. Yeah, so one of the challenges we've always had is we fly these things inside. Walls eat signal, especially in a collapsed building environment where you have tens of feet of concrete or rebar um, between you and, and the aircraft when you're trying to fly around, you end up just losing, losing connection with the bird. Even like the most advanced radios won't be able to do that given the size and weight constraints on everything that we have to sort of build. Uh, so we've been, we've been thinking for a while, you know, how do we solve this? And the, the best answer is really a mesh networking system. So if you're in a huge commercial building, for example, you can't punch a signal all the way from the exterior through the entire thing. You can now take off one of our birds. You can send it in a third of the way or half of the way until you start losing signal just a little bit. Then you can perch that drone, just land it or keep it in the air if you want, get live video back from it, get live audio back from it, and use it as a signal repeater. So then you can take off another bird, send it in, bounce your signal from your radio to bird one, to bird two, and clear the rest of the thing. And uh, as an industry first feature and one I, I think is going to matter a lot to our customers. All right, Blake, you just got back from a very interesting trip yeah. to the White House. Right. And I want to talk about that when we come back. Sure. You're listening to GeekWire, and we'll be right back from our recording on location at Brink in Seattle. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. I'm here with Brink founder and CEO, Blake Resnick. It's funny, Blake, I wanted to call it Brink Drones, but I know the company <laughs> yeah. is being referred to more frequently as Brink these days because of the fact that you're not just doing drones, you also have the Brink Ball. I can imagine there might be more oh, down yeah. the road. Yeah, yeah. No, other, other kinds of products? Absolutely. I think, I think public safety has really kind of been neglected for a while by the technology industry. And I think it's a shame because there are so many opportunities for technology to save lives in the context of emergency operations, you know, um, hardware, software, combinations of the two, and uh, we're, we're really excited to build it. This raises an important point. I think one of the reasons that public safety and law enforcement have been an area that some tech companies have shied away from is because of the potential to do harm. Certainly. Um, and certainly that is something that drones in military warfare are known for, of course. But you have a principle that flies in the face of that, if you'll pardon the pun. Yeah. Tell me about how you came to that and, and what it involves. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, when the very, very earliest days 
you know, before October 1, I wasn't entirely sure what kind of company I wanted to build. If, if it was going to be, you know, a defense company, all a Onderol or something similar. Um, when, uh, when, our, when October 1 rolled around, though, I think it, it made it a lot more clear to me that um, I wanted to build tools for public safety to help them save lives, right? To help in active shooter events and other critical incidents. And uh, that, that has just since been a, a guiding principle. Um, I, I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but the long-term vision, what we really want to accomplish is using drones to respond to 911 calls in cities. Um, I think if we can actually deliver, you know, Narcan and ADs and EpiPens and drive 911 response times down to seconds instead of tens of minutes, which is where it's at in many big cities around the country, which is terrifying, uh, I think we will make the world better. But I don't think that the public will accept these technologies if we are also building weaponized drones on the side. And um, yeah, I think if if given the choice between these two paths, we, we definitely want to take the one that, that prioritizes public safety. So you were just at the White House last week. Why were you there? Who did you talk with? And what happened? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that was really fun. That was, um, yeah, it was my, it was my first time there. So, uh, yeah, we, basically what happened is um, through, through my chief of staff, I met uh, the person that runs the White House Historical Association, which is a, a really kind of interesting group. They're, they're the group that does all the paintings and furniture in the White House. The new president comes in, they'll redecorate the Oval Office and just like a fascinating Fascinating organization. So I, uh, I got to meet him. We had a good interaction. A couple of weeks later, he had a lunch with the first lady set up um, to talk about uh, effectively education in general, the education mission of his organization. That's, of course, a major focus for Dr. Biden. Uh, I was lucky enough to get an invitation. So um, we, we had lunch together in the Blue Room, and I talked about kind of my weird path through education. This is, yeah, always been strange, but um, talked about that and uh, talked a little bit about our, our work building public safety drones, and it was, it was a really good time. Are there any regulatory issues on your radar at this point that came up during that conversation or that might be the subject of conversations for you in Washington, D.C. these days? Yeah, we did, we did talk a little bit about that. So... There, there are a couple of major policies working their way through the federal government that are, I think, going to be very impactful to the drone industry. Um, the biggest is around beyond visual line of sight drone flights. So right now, under FAA regulation, you can't fly a drone beyond your just personal visual line of sight, which is a big problem because if you want to take off a drone from a fire station and deliver an AED to someone having a heart attack, more than likely it's going to be more than a mile or two away from that fire station. Eventually you're going to lose visual contact with the drone. And then under current regs, you have to turn back and land. And uh, that, that isn't a great situation. This affects package delivery companies. It affects automated inspection companies, really the entire drone industry. So one thing that's really exciting is in FA reauthorization, 
There's language in both the House and Senate versions of the bill that requires the FAA to do rulemaking on beyond visual line of sight. So it doesn't tell them what rules to write, but it tells them they do have to write rules, which I think is going to have incredible impacts across the entire drone industry. Package delivery, us, everyone. So a lot of conversations going on about that. And I think the other big topic is, you know, the United States federal government has banned itself from purchasing Chinese drones. Right. Uh, this is also a big deal because the biggest drone companies in the world are based out of one city, which is Shenzhen in China. One of which you worked for? Yeah, that's by, by far the biggest. I mean, I think you'll find some reports saying they have around 90% or 70% market share, excuse me. I think they really have more like 90% market share. Like they own the industry. The drone industry is a monopoly. DJI owns that monopoly. Um, and maybe another 5% or so is controlled by Autel, which is another company based out of the same city. Uh, so there's just this fascinating moment in time right now where the biggest drone buyers in the world, you know, U.S. federal government, public safety, three-letter agencies, critical infrastructure, cannot buy drones from the biggest drone companies in the world, which are all, you know, all based out of this one city. So uh, that that's kind of the other big regulatory thing that that's going on. And yeah, it affects us a lot. It would be to your advantage, I would assume. So it, it is to our advantage and to our detriment because this also applies to our entire supply chain. So uh. all of these rules, <laughs> all of these rules also say we can't use any parts from, from China, which is a problem because not only are all the big drone companies here, the entire global supply chain for these parts are based in the same place. So we're not allowed to use, you know, radios or flight computers or cameras or anything else that are, are coming out of these factories, which are basically the best in the world for these components. So what we've had to do now with Lemur 2 is go through and design our own versions of everything, which has been enormously challenging. So it's like, yeah, we don't have to compete with DJI, but also we have to do so much more work than we would have otherwise. So that's one reason you have so many 3D printers out there on the floor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. A hundred percent. Everything from airframe components to printed circuit boards to optics assemblies, like we can't, we're not allowed to source it from, from the major suppliers. So we have, to, we have to do our own stuff. So it sounds like you would like to do most of the manufacturing or some portion of the manufacturing and assembly here still, but in terms of the components, you'd like to be able to source those from Asia, from China. I, it, it, so, you know, it would have made our lives dramatically easier. It would have made the development process on this drone dramatically faster. I think, I, I, I do relate though to the federal government's perspective because there are legitimate cybersecurity concerns around, you know, SEAL Team 6 using a right. DJI drone. Like, right. that's probably not advisable. <laughs> um, so I, I appreciate that. And I, I think the other thing going through their head is America does not have a robust drone supply chain at all. And, you know, you look at the conflict in Ukraine, they're going through 10,000 drones a month right now. Like, that is their consumption. This is this is absolutely the future of warfare. And I think America is looking around, these, these politicians and planners, they're realizing that we couldn't produce that kind of quantity if we had to. And these regulations are a way to build up some American industrial capacity in the drone space. And uh, I think uh, that's a big part of their thinking. We're running out of time here, but 
I can't believe that I don't think I've said the word AI in this conversation, <laughs> which yeah. is very rare these days. Sam Altman was the first investor in the company. Is this new era of AI and generative AI influencing how you think about your business? It is. Yeah, it is. I mean, they're just incredibly powerful tools. So our drone can't even hover without quite a lot of AI ML working in, in the background um, in order to help with like that LiDAR based localization technology we just talked about in order to process the video feeds coming from the cameras on the drone that we also utilize for navigation. Um, we're using those, those techniques a lot. And there are some other features that we're really excited about that are in development that are also enabled by, by some of these advancements. So one is on Brinkball and also on Lemur, we're doing live transcription. Um, oh, whoa. Yeah, this is cool. So like during a negotiation, we'll be transcribing everything, doing speech to text, and also live translation. So if it just so happens person in crisis only speaks Korean, for example, like we can translate live for hostage negotiators. So we're pumped about that. Wow. Uh, and then we're also doing weapon detection. So we'll process all the video feeds, thermal camera feeds. And if we capture a gun, you know, or any, any weapon in frame, we'll, we'll send an alert. Wow. That's incredible. Two last quick ones here. I've heard you say in the past that you were really a do-it-yourself learner on fundraising in particular, yeah, sure. and that it's been one of the most challenging things you've done. Sure. And yet you've been able to succeed in ways many entrepreneurs haven't. Sure. How did you do it? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I mean, I, I've the first couple of times I attempted to fundraise, I did fail. So like it wasn't <laughs> yeah. like I was actually in my parents' house for a while. Um, I, I met I met Sam Altman through a, a strange like chain of events. Um, he ended up investing really quickly in the company w within a few hours of our first meeting. Whoa. Uh, yeah, uh, that added a lot of credibility to the company. So like I, I really do owe him a lot. I feel very grateful to him for doing that. Um, that that was our first like. 2.2 million bucks. Yeah. Before. How did you meet him? I mean, how did you connect with him? Oh, Can it's you a crazy say? story. Uh, yeah. If you got, if you got a second. Yeah. If you have time, I've got, I've got <laughs> yeah, all the time all right, in the world. Sure, let's do it. So this really is a weird story, but it's true. Um, I failed a couple of times to fundraise. I was frustrated, kind of feeling down on my luck. Um, but I had this friend from Northwestern. So this is after I dropped out, but I called him and I was kind of complaining about my situation. He was like, Hey, you know, I know this TikTok influencer manager that is starting to get into startup investments. And I'm like, oh my God, like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, are these the depths of fall into, you know, <laughs> I, that, that I'm seriously contemplating this, but I didn't have any better options. So I was like, okay, fine. Yeah, sure. Let's set it up. Low expectations. So uh, I'm connected with this guy. We go, we set up this meeting. I log on, uh, I'm, I'm waiting, like three minutes go by, five minutes go by, seven minutes go by. It's like, what's going on? Send him an email, finally he logs on. When he logs on, um, he is in, in bed with a shirtless dude next to him, also in bed with him, to log on to this business pitch to talk about investing in a startup. So it's like, wow, if my expectations were low, like they just fell through the floor. Um, but listen, like I was desperate and 
we were here. So I go and try my best to stay professional and like start my pitch. So I go, I get maybe 90 seconds into this pitch. He holds up his hand. He says, hey, stop, 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 stop. I'm too stupid to invest in this. That was a quote. Uh, I'm going to log on to my friends and then they'll tell me if I should give you money or not. And then he turns off his camera feed. Now I'm sitting again, waiting. It's only getting more bizarre. Um, a couple minutes go by, two people log on, his camera turns back on. He's like, okay, go ahead again. So I go, I'm, I'm doing my pitch, maybe not so enthusiastically at this point. Uh, we, we finish and I think nothing of it besides I just wasted an hour of my life. Um, so from there, a couple hours go by, I get this random phone number on my phone. I have no idea who it is. I go, I answer it. It's so like, hey, I was one of the guys that, um, that this TikTok manager like brought on. I'm actually Sam Altman's ex-boyfriend. And yeah, I know, I know. I'm actually Sam Altman's ex-boyfriend. And like, I thought your pitch was really interesting. And you know, if you're interested, I'd love to connect you to Sam. Like, I think he might be interested in investing. It's like, wow, that is not how I expected that to go. Uh, so yeah, he goes and he connects me with Sam over email. Um, I'm super nervous. Like Sam Altman is by far the coolest investor. He was running Y Combinator probably at the time. So he, at this point, he stopped Y Combinator. He was doing OpenAI, pretty early days in OpenAI though. Um, but he's still really a high profile guy. Yeah. I mean, Y Combinator is of course amazing. The other thing going through my mind is like this dude has heard so many pitches like he's heard everything like there's no way he's going to be interested in me low pressure right oh my god so <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm pretty freaked out so we go we set up a zoom meeting i get like a 30 minute block with him and i'm actually kind of nervous about this because at the time my pitch was too long it was like 45 minutes long uh, so I knew I had to like really run through the thing. So I go, I log, I log on. Once again, I'm waiting like one minute, three minutes, five minutes, six minutes, and then he logs on. And now I'm really freaked out because I've got like 24 minutes to run through my 45 minute pitch. Like this is going to be a problem. Um, but I go, I start doing my thing. I'm delivering the pitch. He's kind of like nodding along as we go. We get to maybe like the 25 minute mark of this thing. Uh, he goes to, he raises up his hand. He's like, hey, Blake, I'm really sorry. Um, this, is, this is actually Elon Musk calling me right now. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm gonna have to like drop off and do this meeting with him, but it's like really interesting and I'll be in touch. Like click and call. Um, maybe 45 minutes go by or an hour goes by. He sends me an email with like three or four questions. I answer the questions, and then his reply is, okay, I'll take the whole round. Oh, my God. I am so glad he was not the shirtless guy in bed. I know. I know. I know. Yeah, me too. Me too. What a story. Yeah, it was crazy. Have you told that story before? Uh, yeah, once. Once. But, it, yeah, it's all true. It's how it happened. So it was just a crazy random chain of events. But that it really laid the foundation for everything. Like, that... Meeting Alex, that's how I got connected with Index Ventures and Mike Volpe, Aaron Prince-Wright, who led our Series A round. Um, and just th that initial capital, it's what allowed me to move out, to build our first drones, to hire for salespeople. Like, it all grew from that. So it was, uh, 
I don't know, sometimes that's what it takes, just a random chain of events. Incredible. Well, Blake, you've had a long day with a board meeting and everything. I want to let you go. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Blake Resnick is the CEO and founder of Brink. See geekwire.com and the show notes on this episode for related links and stories. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the GeekWire podcast wherever you listen. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.